0: everybody. Uh, my name is Hannah Minty. I'm one of the partners here in the family team at Russell Cook and I'm here with my colleague.
1: Hello everybody. I'm Gareth Ledsham and I am a partner in the Trust and Estate Disputes team at Russell Cook.
0: Um, and today, Gareth and I wanted to talk to you as part of our series of Let's Talk podcasts um, to discuss another interesting issue which has arisen following a recent High Court decision, which has the potential to impact on the work of both family lawyers and private client lawyers. Um, the issue we wanted to look at focuses on the interaction between financial provision on divorce under the Matrimonial Causes Act 1973 and future claims on death under the Inheritance Provision and Family Provision for Family Independence Act 1975. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, This is an issue which most often comes up for family lawyers on a day-to-day basis in the context of divorce proceedings when we're dealing with consent orders uh, where the onus is on us to ensure that appropriate dismissal clauses are included in the order with the aim of preventing any future claims on death. Um, of one of the parties under section 15 of the 75 Act which would undermine any claim right provisions which are otherwise within the consent order um, or conversely to avoid the dismissal of claims where there's an ongoing uh, periodical payments order Um, the interaction between the two uh, pieces of legislation is also an issue which sometimes arises when drafting prenuptial agreements um, because the drafting party will often want to exclude 75 Act claims if provision under a will is at least as generous as the terms of the nuptial agreement Um, and this is something which we often have to advise is not binding um, but it is a factor which the court can uh, consider in determining any future 75 act claim as I understand it. Gareth please jump in, feel free to correct me at any point if I'm uh, misstating the law there on 75 act claims.
1: No, Hannah, you're absolutely not misstating the law, that's absolutely right. Um, It's certainly something that can be considered uh, by a court in a 1975 act claim, but the court doesn't like its jurisdiction being usurped in any way. Um, So there are various categories of claimants who can uh, make a claim against an estate where they feel that reasonable financial provision hasn't been made for them. Of course, the two relevant for today's purposes are spouses and former spouses. So as a private client lawyer, I look at it from sort of a slightly different direction. similar considerations so if we're looking at a claim by a former spouse who is entitled to claim against the estate one needs to check that they haven't remarried because that would scupper a claim but also we have to check that there aren't any section 15 orders that you were referring to a moment ago if we're dealing with a spouse then we actually have a divorce cross check in the 1975 act and so I often have cause to check with my family law colleagues to see what might happen on intervals because that can be a starting point for working out what would be reasonable uh, financial provision one of the other things that we have to do is look at the pot out of which we're claiming provision um and there are various uh, options under the act to claw assets back in so for example joint property can sometimes uh, that's passed by survivorship can be pulled back in um also, if assets have been given away in an attempt to defeat claims under the um, under the 1975 Act, they can also be claimed back. And that's one of the things that came up in the case that we're talking about today. So I'll pass over to Hannah, who can uh, just take us through the facts briefly.
0: Thank you, Gareth. So um, the case that we want to talk about today is the case of uh, Simsey and Salandron. Um, which was a decision of the High Court in October of this year. And we'll post the citation in the link to this podcast. But very briefly, I just want to outline the facts. Um, The deceased was a gentleman by the name of David Sismay. And the proceedings were cross applications brought by his adult son from his first marriage by the name of Thomas and his widow from his second uh, marriage, uh, a lady by the name of Marissa. Um, And in particular, the proceedings related to a property that David was living in before he passed away together with Marissa and their child, who's still a minor. Um, The property was also the family home during David's first marriage um, to a woman by the name of Sheila, and there had been a consent order in the context of those divorce proceedings dealing with that property. It resulted in a deed of covenant for the property to be settled by Will on Thomas, uh, the adult child from the first marriage. Um, David then made a will, contemporaneously gifting the property to Thomas. Um, Very sadly, two years later, David was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and before his death, he married Marissa. who became his second wife, and this had the effect of revoking his will and the gift to Thomas. Um, No further will was made, and David died a few months later intestate. The value of the estate was said to be around about £200,000, of which the majority of this, around about £190,000, was the property itself. And the effect of the deed of covenant was that Thomas would inherit the estate with no significant provision from it for Marissa or the minor child. Um, Subject to the deed of covenant, um, Marissa, as his uh, spouse, stood to inherit the entirety of the estate and she actually subsequently obtained a transfer of the property into her sole name and she continued to live there during the proceedings with um, their child. Um, So at the heart of the proceedings was question of whether this deed of covenant, um, which had come out of the divorce proceedings between David and his first wife, could be enforced and if so, um, what provision should be made for Marissa? Um, Gareth, would you be able to talk us through the arguments which were run on behalf of um, both Thomas and Marissa within the uh, proceedings?
1: I certainly can. Um, It's a rather unusual set of facts and and quite complex. I know reading through a judgment, it uh, took a bit of time for me to to get my head around who was arguing what. But essentially, uh, Thomas argued that uh, there should be specific performance of the agreement that was uh, entered into at the time of his parents divorce. So that was uh, Sheila, the first wife. now, as Hannah said, the marriage to Marissa had the effect of revoking the will. So, even though David had, you know, complied with his side of the agreement, uh, his implementation of that um, didn't work because the will he made, gifting the, the property to um, to Thomas, uh, was revoked. Um, so, the, the situation we had was that there was an intestate estate, and ordinarily, the whole estate. Um, would pass to Marisa because I think it was only about £200,000, as, as we've said, and the statutory legacy at the time uh, was £250,000. So that's the reason that Thomas was seeking specific performance of the agreement to take out the property from the estate. In the alternative, Thomas sought a declaration that there had been a constructive trust in his favour in respect of the property uh, and therefore requested the court to transfer it to him. Marissa, on the other hand, defended the application. She said that the deed of covenant um, did not comply with the formalities and was therefore not enforceable. Uh, the formalities I'm referring to are those under Section 2, uh, subsection 1 of the Law of Property Miscellaneous Provisions Act 1989. Uh, what she was saying was that the deed did not effectively incorporate all the terms of the agreement. i.e., It did not refer to the consideration given by Sheila, the first wife, um, I hear giving up her claims. Um, <clears throat> and she also said that no constructive trust uh, arose. Marissa also had a second string to her defence, and that was uh, in the event that the court deemed that the deed of covenant was enforceable. She said that she wanted to make a claim under, the, under Section 2 of the 1975 Act, for reasonable financial provision. But because of the effect of the deed of covenant taking the property out of the estate, she made a claim under Section 11 of the 1975 Act that the property should, in fact, form part of the estate and not be transferred to Thomas. Effectively, she was arguing that the deed of covenant was intended to defeat claims under the 1975 Act, and therefore the court should not allow it to stand. So what she needed to show under section uh, Section 11, subsection 2 of the 1975 Act, was that we had a contract to dispose of property out of the estate, well, that's the deed of covenant, that it was intended to defeat the, uh, claim, a claim under the 1975 Act. Uh, there was evidence in the case that that's exactly what they were intending to do. There was emails going backwards and forwards between um, David and Sheila she also has to show that no full valuable consideration was given for the um, for for the disposal out of the estate and she also would have to show that bringing the property back into the estate would facilitate an award under the act which is quite clear in this case because without the property the estate was only worth about thirteen thousand pounds and i'll hand over to hannah and she can talk uh, us through some of the evidence that was heard
0: So Marissa admitted that she had signed the consent order between David and his first wife, Sheila, to say that she didn't claim any beneficial interest in the property in question and that she was aware of the contents of that consent order. It's a little bit unusual, not something which you would see as a family lawyer very often. Um, She said she didn't take legal advice at the time of signing it despite being told that she should do um, but she was aware that by signing the document she would not be able to make a claim on the property. Um, She then told the court that shortly before David uh, passed away he showed her a letter that he'd received from Thomas's solicitor asking him to transfer the property to Thomas as a gift and she said that David told her to throw the letter away and it was a trick and Thomas's evidence was that he was first aware that the property was being left to him uh, in around 2012 or 2013 while he was at university Um, and he was aware that there was some uncertainty about the mechanism that was going to be used for this but it was a question uh, of uh, how and not whether the property would be left to him. Um, In her evidence, Sheila stated that at the time uh, that they were looking at the finances as part of the divorce proceedings, her pension was worth around about £160,000 less than David's pension, which was roughly equivalent to the value of the property that had been their family home and which David was still living in. She had initially suggested that there would be a pension sharing order, but David was unwilling to do this, so her evidence was that they agreed instead that Thomas would have the property, as this would um, settle the disparity uh, on the financial uh, settlement of their claims. And uh, she and David had discussed the mechanisms to ensure that David could live in the property for the rest of his life, while ensuring that it went to Thomas on his death. And her evidence was that they both considered this to be fair in exchange for her giving up claims against the pension and in respect of some other aspects of backdated maintenance. Um, she was aware um, in signing the consent order that Marissa was aware of the terms of it and had signed the order. And. Um, Gareth, can you talk us through um, what the court determined on the basis of uh, this evidence?
1: I certainly can. Um, Well, the the bottom line is that Thomas's claim for enforcement of the Deed of Covenant succeeded. Um, Marissa, who had argued um, under Section 2 of the uh, 1989 Act that the Deed of Covenant um, shouldn't be enforced because it didn't contain all the necessary terms, um, was found not to uh, well, did not succeed um, effectively the deed of covenant recited the order um, that was made in the financial remedy proceedings and the judge said that those documents had to be read as one uh, and so she didn't get very far on that um, so that left her with her 1975 act claim and trying to claw back the property into that um, by saying that the deed of covenant was um, effectively uh, depriving the estate uh, of assets, and it was done with a view to avoiding a 1975 Act claim. Um, So she got through on, I think, three of the four uh, criteria that we mentioned uh, earlier. But where she fell down was that uh, she wasn't able to show that there was no full valuable consideration for the uh, the disposition uh, in the deed of covenant. Um, so because her Section 11 claim failed, then the property was not available as an asset of the estate. And that meant, unfortunately, um, because there were no other assets which could be pulled back into the estate, she was left with whatever was left in the estate. Uh, and, and therefore, her claim for reasonable financial provision couldn't go any further. And um, therefore, Thomas was entitled to an order that the property was transferred to him. So that's that's the judgment. Um, Hannah, what can we learn from this?
0: Uh, well, as a family lawyer, I think the case highlights um, the need for us to consider what advice clients would be provided at the time of the divorce on the effect of divorce and testamentary arrangements. Um, contrary to common belief, divorce doesn't revoke a will. The will remains valid, save that it's now read as if their ex-spouse had died on the day that the decree absolute was pronounced and contrast this with the position in relation to marriage, which does revoke a will as happened here in this case. Um, whether assets can be passed down through the generations instead of divided on divorce is a conversation which many family lawyers will be familiar with having with clients and we're always alive to the revocable nature of a will and that it's generally not a satisfactory way of dealing with any assets on divorce, even if you can persuade the other party that it's a fair outcome, um, which uh, in my experience would be uh, quite difficult. Um, a deed of covenant is an unusual aspect of provision on divorce. Um, it is one of the uh, most precedents that's available there um, in the armory of family lawyers when drafting consent orders but I think um, my experience is something that I would instinctively avoid if at all possible. Um, Most family lawyers I think would be quite nervous about advising their clients to place reliance upon a contract to leave property by way of a will in this way as part of a financial remedy. proceedings. Um, I think one key takeaway for me as a family lawyer is to think about the fact that your consent order may not be the end of the matter, um, where these powers exist under section 11 of the 1975 Act and they offer a route to challenging a consent order on divorce and we might not always have that in mind when we're dealing with the assets on divorce. So bear in mind that your file might be opened up again in the future and consider um, how things might operate post-death if you're negotiating a financial settlement. Um, An issue in this case was whether the deed of covenant was intended as a means to comply with the agreement reached pursuant to the divorce or whether it was actually intended to defeat the 1975 Act claim which would be more problematic and the court determined that it was necessary in that context to look at the intentions that the parties had during the negotiations which involved consideration of the solicitor's file and that's a position that few family lawyers would uh, actively liked to be in um, the court determined that the file did show some evidence of collusion between the parties um, and although in this case the outcome was that the consent order wasn't disapplied I think this sort of scrutiny was not perhaps a factor which was in the mind of all involved at the time of the negotiations um, and something that she I think has to be more alive to in the future um, careful consideration should be given from a negligence point of view I think in every case Um, when dealing with divorce proceedings as to whether you are fully aware of the potential issues which could arise on a 1975 Act claim and if not, and how your actions might deal, might might impact on that in in the context of the way that you're recording and presenting matters in the file. And if you're in any doubt as to what the implications are, seek specialist advice from someone like my lovely colleague uh, Gareth, who deals with this on a day-to-day basis. Um, A further issue arising from this case was, uh, again, as Garris uh, mentioned, whether full consideration uh, was given um, and uh, within the the financial remedy proceedings, whether that constituted full consideration um, for the purposes of the deed of covenant. Um, This is a concept which many family lawyers will already be familiar with in the context of insolvency proceedings following the decision of Hill and Ames in 2007. And um, in this case, the court reiterated that um, compromising financial remedy cases could constitute full consideration. Um, And in this case, it did. But in arriving at this conclusion, the court had to retrospectively go back through all of the circumstances and apply the Section 25 factors to determine whether the settlement was actually within the brackets Um, and it, it determined that it was although not actually for the reasons that were explored fully during the negotiations at the time and this again highlights I think key for family lawyers the importance of good record keeping on your divorce file list you ever find yourself in this situation and Gareth are there any lessons for private client lawyers coming out of these uh, this this particular case
1: Thanks, Hannah. Yes, I think there are one or two other. It's quite clear that uh, from a family law perspective, this is a bit of a, a nightmare area and um, you know, lots of care is needed. Um, I think from the private client perspective, um, this is an interesting case because it's the first reported case, at least that I'm aware of, uh, which has actually dealt with uh, an application under Section 11 of the 1975 Act. And I think the key point for me is that it's a useful reminder that whenever a private client lawyer is looking at these sorts of cases, that we need to look at it from all angles when analysing them and think about is there a way to increase the pot of money available to claim against, is there a way Uh, to bring assets back in, because that can sometimes be overlooked. And that would be unfortunate if you don't uh, increase the pot against which you're claiming as much as you can. Um, I think it's important that we're all aware that the court is generally very suspicious of attempts to defeat 1975 Act claims. As I mentioned earlier, the court doesn't like its jurisdiction being usurped. uh, And the only way you can really um, get rid of a 1975 Act claim is by having a Section 15 order uh, in your consent Uh, order for your um, financial claim. Um, But as we saw in this case, even though there was a clear attempt to defeat a 1975 Act claim, because full valuable consideration had been given by Sheila at the time, uh, because she'd compromised her claims, then certain attempts to defeat a 75 Act claim can succeed. Um, I have seen, uh, when I've been negotiating, um, Claims, for example, in relation to a, a will challenge, offers by parties to uh, leave property by will um, you know, in order to, to reach an agreement with the other parties. And I have to say, I've always been quite sceptical of those. And I think this case, even though it's in the context of a 1975 Act claim, um, gives me all the more reason to be so.
0: Yeah, um, an unusual set of facts, but quite a lot to take away from this case, I think, for both family lawyers and private client lawyers, which might cause us to pause and uh, think uh, carefully about um, whether or not this is something which we'll be seeing um, further use of Section 11 in this way in the future. Yeah. Um, okay well thank you very much unless there's anything gareth that you want to add i think that's all for me no i don't think
1: so from me um that's all from me as well so thank you everybody for listening and um speak to you in a future podcast
0: thank you goodbye
1: (laughs) bye for now